Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today we're turning our attention to the Second World War and to voices and experiences that have long been forgotten. While historians have for some time acknowledged the important role played by British imperial soldiers, the experiences of the empire's women have been largely ignored. What stories might be uncovered if we looked at the conflict through a feminist lens? How did the pressures of global war from Aden to Calcutta to Hong Kong transform the contours of women's lives? Yasmin Khan is an associate professor of British history at the University of Oxford. Her recent book, The Raj at War, offers a people's history of India's experiences of World War II, using the voices of ordinary people, from soldiers and nurses to peasants and prostitutes, to uncover the economic, social, and cultural transformations that hastened the unraveling of the British Empire. She returns to that territory in this year's Raphael Samuel Memorial Lecture, delivered at Queen Mary College, London. Her lecture is titled, Women on the Frontline of Empire, A Feminist History of the Second World War. I'm of a generation that is at one degree of separation from Raphael Samuel. I never met him, sadly, or even heard him speak. In fact, it was the very same term that I started university as a history undergraduate, unbeknownst to me that he sadly died far too young in 1996. But I've been a beneficiary of his legacy, of his commitment to people's history, and not least from the friendship and intellectual examples of the editors at History Workshop Journal. So you can imagine my surprise and trepidation to be asked to give this lecture this evening, and I'm very grateful um, to the Raphael Samuel History Centre and to Queen Mary for hosting me this evening. This memorial, you may have seen it in London. It's about halfway down Whitehall, <coughs> prominently placed just to the north of the Cenotaph, close to the gate of 10 Downing Street. The plaque placed underneath declares this memorial was raised to commemorate the vital work done by over 7 million women during World War II. Cast in bronze, it depicts the clothing, the uniforms, overalls, coats, caps and capes worn by women workers in the Second World War. The uniforms of the Army and Women's Royal Naval Service, RAF, Red Cross nurses, land girls, munitions, factory workers, air wardens and others. Now the memorial itself was controversial. Some of this controversy was about the lumping together of civilian and military roles. The equality apparently given to women who were civilians and women who'd served in the armed forces. Other veterans objected to being memorialised as women at all. They felt other kinds of primary identities, they claimed. Others just didn't like the abstraction of the memorial itself, the lack of bodily figures and the use of garments, which weren't even hung up properly on coat hangers, like a jumble sale complained one letter to the charity. <laughs> but among these discussions, the number, 7 million, was unquestioned. It was taken as a given. Britain was the first country to conscript women in 1941, and there was a significant contribution to the war effort by women, now much studied and well understood. The nation that the memorial belonged to was also unquestioned. There was an assumption that the women were British, although interestingly that isn't um, specified anywhere on the monument itself. Women doing war work within British shores during the 1940s weren't homogenous in any way, and their Britishness was also compatible with routes in Europe, Asia, the Caribbean and Africa, 
As Wendy Webster has shown in an excellent recent book, wartime London was a far more diverse place than is often assumed. The women on this poster in purple saris are ARP wardens working in central London. You can see the gas masks around their necks. Women of various ethnicities were living and working in Britain in the 1940s. Others included the special operations executive Noor Inayat Khan, executed in France by the Nazis. The activist, writer and broadcaster from Jamaica, Una Mason, on BBC. Raphael Samuel's mother was one of these seven million women working towards the war in Britain too. Minna Keel, a talented musician, composer and political activist, was born near Brick Lane in 1909, where her family ran a small Hebrew bookshop. Her parents were Russian Jewish immigrants and she grew up speaking Yiddish. She experienced political and personal transformation in the 1930s, supporting the Republican struggle during the Spanish Civil War, joining the Communist Party in 1939, and leaving her husband after his call-up in 1941. She moved to Slough and was frenetically busy working in a factory, making parts for aircraft, where she set up a union branch, whilst also bringing up her son alone. My own maternal grandmother was another one of the seven million, an Irish woman, Ina Hogan, from Tralee in West Ireland, who left home at the age of 15. Her schooling had ended sometime earlier than that. The daughter of an engine driver on the railways. In her eagerness to leave the urban poverty of her large Catholic household crammed with ten children, her siblings, and in her keenness to join the army before the allowable age. She went to Dublin, sailed to Liverpool, enlisted in the British Army in the 1940s, spending the war in the south of England, driving motorcycles and ambulances for the Auxiliary Territorial Service. This war service, and marriage to an Englishman, was completely compatible with ambivalence about Britain and a quiet attachment to Irish republicanism. My own interest in this subject undoubtedly stems from the personal history of my own family. But what about beyond the shores of Britain? What of the wives, mothers, sisters, the women who laboured and lived alongside men in the 1940s around the empire? It's to these women, the women of the empire in the 1940s, that I turn to this lecture this evening. For my other grandmother, on my father's side, was at the same moment in northern India, in Uttar Pradesh, and had quite a different war. She was busily supporting the campaign for the creation of Pakistan. She also married and had her first child, my father, in the 1940s. And for this grandmother, on my paternal side, the 1940s wasn't wartime at all, although she would have undoubtedly felt the inflation that war brought, the high cost of food and cloth, seen troops coming and going from her railway junction city. The effects of war reached as far inland as her home in North India, but for her, this was really the time of the ascendance of the Muslim League and the nationalist battles in the lead-up to partition and independence. It was those events and the subsequent migration of the family to Pakistan and a new life in Karachi which defined this time for her. So for me personally, how we narrate the British war, how we define who was in it, who was out of it, the ways in which women were or worked into these histories have been intriguing. Britain's part and the British Empire's part in the Second World War are still just coming to historical fruition. Events, archives and concepts are still being fully digested and understood. Knowledge of imperial involvement or integration of imperial resistance, which goes beyond just the role of the black or Asian soldier, is still emergent. We know about civilians in the Blitz or Stalingrad, but when it comes to the Caribbean or India, histories are only just emerging. If empire is the elephant in the room when we discuss the war in Britain, then women are doubly invisible. So the question I pose this evening is what might global and feminist histories of the Second World War look like? How might we construct histories of the Second World War that are inclusive and give some equivalence of voice to people who weren't on the front lines, weren't actually invaded necessarily, although sometimes they were, but were on imperial home fronts, whose lives were still radically shaped by the involvement of the British Empire in the war. The empire played many different roles in the 40s as part of Britain's global military system of imperial defence. It was both the scene of actual battle and territorial struggle, most obviously between the British and the Japanese, 
in the East. In 1942, the eastern chunk of the British Empire fell completely to the Japanese. Hong Kong, Singapore, Rangoon, everywhere east of Burma. The empire did provide men, 2.5 million men for the Indian army and half a million from British Africa. But it was also an expansive home front, even in areas where fighting didn't take place, a barrack for hundreds of thousands of soldiers being moved around in readiness for fighting. It became a training ground, munitions plant. Imperial cities from Nairobi to Calcutta swelled as laborers flocked towards inflated wartime wages and subsidized food and factory work. Munitions, textiles, but also medicines, vaccines. Many cities, especially port cities, were rest and recreation grounds for the many soldiers waiting for action or coming back from war or just waiting around in transit. So social and economic life was being changed and the war was also envisaged as an imperial war. Propaganda of the time makes that very clear. The war was envisaged as uh, an idea with an idealized vision of imperial togetherness. Above all, there were food shortages and food deprivation. Bengal famine of 1943 is the most serious wartime famine, but also elsewhere, if not outright famine, starvation deaths, food shortages, and chronic inflation. The shadow of famine and very extreme food conditions definitely occurred in parts of Kenya, Gold Coast, Nigeria, Iran, and I think this is probably one of the least investigated um, histories of the 1940s that, that still could kind of yield a lot of interesting information. As in Britain, colonial states had to reorient their economies to wartime. And this brought problems and challenges which affected people's lives. So today I'm going to echo this sense of an imperial experience, talking about disparate places in, in the collective, while also kind of I'm very aware of the generalisation that that entails and the differences between these places. In 2017, the calamitous foreign secretary, one Boris Johnson, was criticised for incredible insensitivity and had to be stopped by his own ambassador from reciting a poem by Rudyard Kipling in the Shwedagon Pagoda, the most sacred Buddhist site in the former capital of Burma. He started uttering the opening verse of Kipling's The Road to Mandalay. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it starts. By the old Mulmain Pagoda, looking lazy at the sea, there's a Burma girl, a sitting, and I know she thinks of me. For the wind is in the palm trees and the temple bells they say, come you back, you British soldier, come you back to Mandalay. Road to Mandalay was written by Kipling in 1890, published as part of Barrack Room Ballads. It ventriloquizes Cockney Tommies in Burma and was a much-loved song sung by British troops in various campaigns. And in the 1940s, it was still tremendously popular, especially with military concert parties and in wide circulation as a gramophone record. But Boris Johnson wasn't the first British member of the establishment to show a liking for this poem. At the official VJ Day ceremony in 2015 held on Whitehall to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the end of the war in Asia, exactly the same poem was read out. I know because I was there, brought in as a pundit for the BBC coverage, and, and I was, let's say, puzzled by this choice of lyric. <laughs> the actor Charles Dance gave a virtuoso performance of Kipling's poem in the presence of David Cameron and the Queen and groups of veterans from the campaigns. That day, the BBC coverage didn't feature an interview or conversation with one single African or Asian veteran, male or female, despite the producer's best attempts to find such a veteran from the 14th Army. And this is despite the fact that three quarters of those in the 14th Army which fought the battles at Koma and Imphal in 1944 weren't white British soldiers, but were from places including Nigeria, Nepal and present-day Pakistan. So I could say a lot about this, but I think it suggests failures to so far fully globalise and war commemoration. But the poem talks of heathen idols and the sexual allure of Burmese women. 
It imagines in the mind of the soldier the girl distracted from her prayer to the Buddha, compelled to kiss the man, and then left pining for him on his absence. The Orientalist sensual allure of the East was an intrinsic part of war history in Asia, and continues to be so today. John Masters, an officer in the Gurkhas, and still among the most celebrated chronicler of Britain's war in Burma, called his own memoir of the war years on the borders of India with a nod to Kipling, the road past Mandalay. Masters was also a compelling writer and an imperial nostalgist. And in a dreamlike sequence, almost a stream of consciousness, right at the end of his book, when he thinks back to the people he's seen during the war, in campaigns from the Middle East and North Africa to Burma, he remembers the women as well as the men. Women came with the men, he writes. There was no distinction of atmosphere, no change from battlefield to boudoir. I saw the young British gunner who had lost both legs outside Tungu and didn't know it sliding down into his morphia sleep, Pete kneeling, smiling beside him. Next to him, the nurse at Habania, laughing, lying in the road, her thighs and breasts curving up as she lay, silhouetted against the dark flatness of the road. Tommy Thompson, the bullet's exit hole, gaping at the base of his neck in the dark rain, and a long-legged girl at Karachi, kneeling beside me in the sand, laughing down at me. This eerie juxtaposition of the dead and the living, the male and the female, the sexual and the morbid, is surely deliberate here. It's hard to know, and there's nothing else in the book that would tell us whether the nurse is dead, alive, alone, with a man. The extremes of warfare are here, but also, and I don't know if this was Master's intention, the importance of the local women in the memories of this time. Representation is all well and good, and there's plenty of it for women in the Empire in the Second World War, from photographs to propaganda, poetry to army reportage. It's not hard to find fetishized, oriental, infantilizing language used to describe women. And they're very visible, especially in, in pinups, I mean, for everything from Marlene Dietrich to the women of, of Mandalay. And the temptation is to sort of stay with representation, to tell the tale through the eyes of the men or through the power of imagery, especially because visual sources are really rich for this time. As you'll see, there's, there's quite a lot of aspects of women's lives around the empire in the 1940 that only exist in photographs. They didn't make it into written text. And so I'm often talking here about non-literate and poor women, and there's a sort of ridiculous imbalance in the sources, the power of the colonial archive, and then the shortage of, of first-person testimony. But glimpses of real lives are possible, and I'm going to concentrate on, on some of these for the rest of the lecture, connected to families and manual labour, and prostitution and sex work, and then women enlisted in the services. Begum Bano lived in a district of Punjab with a long history of military service. She couldn't write, but she employed a letter writer to pen a letter on her behalf on August the 6th, 1941, which she authenticated with her inky thumbprint. Her 25-year-old son, Amir Dad, was serving in Punjab Regiment and had been sent to Aden. She'd received the shattering news that he'd been court-martialed while he was away in the Middle East and imprisoned. Her letter appealed to the government on her son's behalf. Unfortunately, he and the other Sepoy, Karamdad, fought with each other, and my son has been sentenced to seven years' imprisonment and is now in jail in Pune. The humble petitioner is old, weak of age, and too poor to see her son at Pune. She hasn't seen her son for the last three years, and she's very anxious to see him. She's given to grief day and night, and her condition deserves pity. She has legs in grave. She is too poor to defray expenses to Pune. Moreover, on account of old age, she's unable to undertake the journey. The petitioner humbly prays that her son may be kindly transferred to a jail near his home so that before her death she may be able to have the last visit of her son, which is her earnest prayer and cherished desire. Amir Dad was being held in prison back in India after his court-martial, but it was still hundreds of miles away from his birthplace, too expensive for his mother to visit. His seven years' rigorous imprisonment was because of causing hurt with a dangerous weapon to another Sipoy. He hadn't made an appeal, his conduct in jail had been good, and he was one of the lucky ones. 
His mother's letter found the support of a sympathetic civil servant, and he was presumably moved. Much of the recruitment in the empire was voluntary, but this is a word we might put in inverted commas, because there were pressures applied to men to induce them to serve. The promise of food in a time of scarcity, the appeal of a regular wage, pressure from senior family members, and sometimes outright coercion. In Nepal, there was heavy pressure to join the Gurkhas, coming from the royal family, their hand in glove with the British crown. Civilian convicts from prisons, for instance, were, were put into the, drafted directly into the armed forces. Quite different to some of the usual British mythology of the Gurkhas. And it wasn't uncommon for young women in heavily recruited regions to have lost father, brother and son across the First and Second World Wars. This image shows Santa Malaya Limbu, photographed in the 1990s, with a picture of her husband presumed dead in the Second World War. She never heard what happened to him, or where. He was declared dead nine years after his disappearance. And in the 1990s, she was still receiving £3 a month for the time her husband was in the British Army. As elsewhere in the world, the Second World War for many women was a time of waiting and worrying. Bereavement, the absence of men, separation, longing for letters, complicated personal lives, illegitimate pregnancies, the fear of death or disablement of their kin. And they waited on the individual news of their loved ones. In 1945, Ramesh Benegal, who'd fled from the Japanese invasion in Burma and then joined the Indian National Army, was reunited with his mother after four years. What a reunion it was. After a dinner that I don't remember eating, I passed into a deep sleep. I heard that my mother sat beside me all night, touched me now and then to make sure that she wasn't dreaming and that this was really her son come back to life. The greatest resistance then came from women to recruitment. Mothers hid sons, sent them up to more isolated hills, out of villages. In Africa, there was a similar story. In southern Tanganyika, the district commissioner reported that because of resistance, conscription has had to develop into a cunning procedure on the part of both the hunter and the hunted. Other mothers resorted to pleading and emotional blackmail. And one Nepali captain who served in Burma believed almost half of Gurkhas in the Second World War left without parental permission. As a result, it was important for the imperial state to show that it had the support of mothers and wives. This picture shows the widow of a Victoria Cross winner. She was there with her young children, Musamat Junkie, an illiterate peasant woman from Punjab who was invited to Delhi to be awarded the Victoria Cross by the Viceroy himself in a grand ceremonial which was highly publicised in the press at the time. Her husband had died on the battlefields of Karen in present-day Eritrea. But she was sort of lucky in the sense that she was informed of what had happened to him and recompensed with military honours and, and the land grant. The Raj, from 1943, awarded medals to mothers. Mothers who had a husband and two or more children in the services, or any parent with three children serving, could now be the recipients of a special imperial medal. And it was recognition of the heavy reliance on certain families by the colonial state. The morale of men serving was seen to rest on the knowledge of and security of home communities, and especially of women. This is a propaganda poster from East Africa, and apparently the translation says, um, write to a soldier every month. The cartoons show a non-literate woman dictating to a scribe, then going to the post office, sending the letter, and then the two men in the field, one elated to get a letter and the other despondent because he hasn't got any post. Concerns about broken marriages, remittances, and relationships with the home community were a serious issue. There were also stories of divorce. Women would often move back with their own parents while their husband was away from home, particularly if they had young children. Nazir Begum, another Indian wife, was becoming a burden and her family were no longer in a position to support her. But she had no sign of a remittance from overseas. Her final plea was that she might be released from the marriage altogether by her husband and be granted a divorce. She wrote to his, his commanding officer, At the end, I will also request, if he is not willing to provide for my maintenance, 
he can by all means extricate me from his clutches by a divorce deed. For a woman in such a position, this fate was worse than that of the war widow, because she would be unable to access any kind of pension. But this wasn't simply a question of morale and moral support. Demands on women's labour were growing with a shortage of men. The war was shaping the nature of agricultural work, and the absence of men was often increasing the manual work to be done. Rural areas struggled with less able-bodied men. Sometimes, um, in some parts of Africa, estimates of 30 to 40 percent less less able-bodied men around. Not just because they're going to war, but because they're going to the factories where there are inflated wages or conscripted to work in industry. So they they're working on tobacco and coffee farms. In, in British Africa, wartime powers were used to conscript men to private industry as well as state mines and plantations. Uh, wartime powers over a command economy which could buy up whole stocks of agricultural produce or redirect the economy in a completely different direction overnight could have devastating impact on all farmers, but it was often women who were caught in between. In Nepal, with less male labour available, women were left with hungry mouths to feed, farmland and paddy to plough and harvest. Their days might start at 5 in the morning, ending at 10 or 11 at night, husking rice, cooking, cleaning, collecting firewood, water and fodder. Children and old men adjusted to the new conditions worked longer and harder in the fields. As a Nepali woman recalled to an anthropologist, Mary Ann Sheen, I hear the whole world was fighting, but why they needed my son's father to settle it, I can't understand. But it would be wrong to give the impression it was only men who were labouring towards the war effort. In India, in jute mills, armaments factories, women were making uniforms and munitions for the military. On the major aerodrome and road construction sites across Asia, Chinese, Burmese and Indian women labourers also worked. Military labour contractors had recruited many into labour gangs, others were supplied by tea planters associations. And one example of this labour is the Lado Road between Burma and China, sometimes described as the Stillwell Road. And the idea of this road, this immense road, this kind of madcap plan to, to build a road trying to, to link up these countries during the war so that aeroplanes wouldn't have to fly over the Himalayas, over the hump. And for the commander Stillwell, it was something of a vanity project. It switched over high jungles between India and China, and many said it was just simply impossible to build. And the road's construction rested on bedrock of Asian labour and meant a never-ending supply of work, but also extreme risks. Barefooted men and women heaved baskets of rocks, building materials in their heads, and broke rocks with pickaxes. Bill Slim, the, the commander, remembered them at work. Pick, shovel, and basket roads made by human labour with an almost laughable lack of machinery. There were weeks on end of waterlogged work, Landslides, the construction workers on the Lady Road were plagued by flash floods, rock falls, as well as sickness. One account recalled, many of these workers were dumped in anonymous roadside graves. Their impoverished families never notified. Indian labour provided nearly 8 million so-called man days, but definitely a, a good proportion of these workers were, were women. Chinese and Burmese too, with children and women are very clearly visible in footage of the early construction work. And a British engineer could point to an area on the road where 600 of his own coolies had died. In the coal mines of India, earlier legislation which had banned women from working underground in mines was overturned during the war because of the need for cheap labour. As Urvi Ketan, a research student here today, is revealing, this one case is rich with detail and representative of the ways in which women workers, often Adivasi and low caste, were treated on the whim of legislation decided in Delhi or London. This humanitarian ban, which had banned coal mining for women underground, which had ended in Britain in the 19th century, was overturned by the colonial government and in a year, over 20,000 women were working underground in coal mines, providing fuel to the factories, producing munitions and supplies in India. My next subject, and I'm afraid it's a rather grim one, it's sort of a bit of a grim litany, is the, is the sex trade. Fighting was only part of soldiering, and often men's experience in the African and Asian wars would alternate between long times without the presence of women, 
on ship in desert or later jungle, with intense periods of rest and rehabilitation in bustling colonial cities. During these times, even when not on leave, they could go out and about in Cairo, Calcutta, Accra. They took every chance they could to visit markets, cinemas, dances and bars, using the services of tailors, rickshaw pullers, taxi drivers, hotel and canteen owners. The official approval of brothels and their status shifted during the war, but in the first three years of the war, across large parts of the British Empire, there was direct support for organised prostitution in the manner of the lock hospitals that existed in the 19th century in Victorian Britain. In Cairo, where large numbers of troops from Britain, India, South Africa, New Zealand and Australia had massed by the early 1940s, ready for the Middle East and North African campaigns, and the red light district was, it was basically a mandatory part of the soldiers' itinerary. This had semi-official status because the brothels were called tolerated brothels, and the women were licensed a system of medical inspections twice weekly by Egyptian doctors, which was directly supported by the British Army and right up until 1943. And even after 1943, this continued to exist in areas of the Middle East and North Africa. The enforcement of out-of-bounds areas or prohibition varied depending on the strength or conviction of the commander and the efficiency of the military police. In Alexandria, representatives of the Royal Navy made a successful appeal that local brothels should remain in bounds, and claims were made about the rights of men, and there was also the latent fear of homosexual relationships. In West Africa, on the Gold Coast, near the airbase at Takoradi, there was an increase of girls and women trafficked from Nigeria. Indeed, the government was forced to pass their, their first law on tra anti-trafficking in 1943 as a result of this. And one of the first tasks for the military commanders on the capture of the Eritrean city of Asmara following the eventual fall of Karen, was the establishment of two sets of official, racially segregated brothels, one for British troops and the other for Indians. After the fall of Tripoli and Benghazi to the Eighth Army, there were problems and a period of chaos in relationship to women. And to give a sense of the scale, this isn't just a sort of minor issue, in the Wagal Burka area in Cairo, it was estimated by the military authorities that 90,000 men a month were visiting the area. And in 1944, in a survey of two American bases, in India, 60% of the American men surveyed said they, they had paid for sex in the China-Burma-India theatre. So the reason we know all this is because the militaries were really concerned with it. They were very, very um, conscious and aware of the debilitating effects, potentially, of uh, sexually transmitted diseases and the threats to the efficacy of allied troops. And so the military was are full of discussions of prostitution, statistics of men invalided. The governor of Bengal described the levels of disease as appallingly high, in Calcutta, among political activists, this was generating protests and deepening anti-war feeling. The parallel could be made, but I think shouldn't be overdrawn with comfort women. There was one very important difference, which is that many of the Chinese, Korean and Filipino women in that system were coerced or abducted against their will. In the free market of the British Empire, there was no such suggestion, but poverty and trafficking did play a part in the privatised local brothels. The foreign soldiers simply had such immense relative purchasing power and this was all in the context of food scarcities. Studies of the Gold Coast, Nigeria and India suggest women working in sex trade at this time were driven by economic conditions. And in Japan, the Allies were certainly uninterested in the war crimes against women on reoccupation. Comfort women were organised on an industrial scale by the Japanese for the US occupation forces. And many women there cited the firebombings and, and poverty, of course. So there was this sort of big network across ports from Plymouth to Portsmouth to Suez, Aden and Egypt, to Bombay, Calcutta, and then onwards to, to Hong Kong and Singapore after reoccupation. But I don't know how far to press this point, and I have to say it's very challenging to talk about, because finding the right tone is difficult. It's too easy to use language which is sensationalist or censorious. In a free market, didn't the women themselves not have a view, an agency, 
Couldn't they choose this and indeed profit from it? I've only ever found written evidence in the voice of the women themselves on one occasion, and it's an extraordinary letter women, written by women in Aden lobbying for their own position. A quarrel had broken out between women who accused each other of stealing business from each other and wrote an aggrieved letter to the medical officer at the RAF hospital accusing the government of giving preference to certain houses in the same lane. We are all British subjects living under the protection of the British flag and it is expected that all the prostitutes will be fairly and equally dealt with, asserted a letter written by Arab, Indian, Abyssinian and Somali girls petitioning against the fact that on some occasions Soldiers are being taken from our house to admit at their own accord. They signed off their letter with a heartfelt plea for the victory of Britain, with a prayer. We shall forever pray for the victory of our gracious king against his foe, the most wicked aggressor Hitler, the destructor of Germany, breaker of world peace. May he be ruined and his power destructed by the almighty God. Amen. So what to make of this? These declarations of loyalism to the crown. It could have been written by brothel owners rather than the women themselves. Can we guess at precariousness and poverty from this? It suggests at least the extreme competition in the wake of the large Allied forces as they travelled through. And it certainly shows a canny sense of how to deal with the military authorities. What seems certain is at least that the war was increasing the possibility of making money from the sex trade in imperial ports. But what about agency? What about the sorts of uh, stories of, of women that we, we know from Europe? As war histories of Europe in the First and Second World Wars have long shown, warfare had ambivalent effects on gendered relations. It was a contradictory story. For some, it delivered opportunities for employment, paid work, for the provision of childcare, for the camaraderie of military or civilian employment, for the transgressions of sexual and social norms. The gender boundary between paid work and civilian status was blurred. Middle-class women in the empire, as in Europe, who volunteered to work in the armed forces or as nurses, negotiated the same opportunities and constraints. The military recruitment schemes and propaganda machines were keen to stress the liberation that wartime work could deliver and tended to emphasise the freedom and adventurism available. For middle-class women in the Dominions, this was often the case. As one auxiliary nursing service advert put it, society no longer requires a girl to be a stay-at-home idler. Often these women were from Canada, Australia and New Zealand, but not always. The emphasis was on women being of the right sort and English-speaking. As they travelled, they learned new things, had romances and adventures. Roles in the auxiliary services were hard-won and often meant overcoming resistance from Whitehall. The Women's Auxiliary Corps in India is an often forgotten force. The majority of the 11,500 women who joined the Women's Auxiliary Corps India were Anglo-Indian or Anglo-Burmese, and others belonged to the Indian Christian community. They were engaged in anti-aircraft direction finding and plotting, parachute inspection and packing, as cipher clerks and operators. The work appealed because of an opportunity to circumvent domestic constraints, to travel, to enjoy the adventure of war as well as loyalism to the cause. And this was bringing a change in attitudes that would leave a post-war imprint in India, although one as elsewhere in the world shot through with ambiguity and challenges. Women fought for recognition as part of Allied forces and struggled to be permitted to take on roles in the ATS and other services. Caribbean women volunteers had their initial appeals to join rejected. And it was only in 1943 that the colonial office managed to persuade the war office that black Caribbean women should be recruited to the ATS. Later that year, the first batch of 30 West Indian women were recruited. Nurses of many nationalities and origins struggled to care for their charges and experienced the effects of wartime at the rock face. They also acted as whistleblowers, making humane and persistent demands on the authority, horrified by the conditions of their patients. Lillian Catherine Pert was volunteering as a nurse in Indian general hospitals throughout the war in Karachi, later in South India. 
doing, as, as she described it, the most exhausting work physically and mentally that an educated Englishwoman can undertake in this country. Lillian Pert asked some tough and persistent questions of her superiors, pointing out the blatant differences between hospitals for Indian troops and hospitals for foreign soldiers. The numbers of properly trained nurses in Indian hospitals were negligible, and Pert estimated that the ratio of nurses to beds in the Indian general and military hospitals was 1 to 100 to 200 for the, for the Indian troops, compared to 1 to 20 to 30, so sort of 10 times, 10 times the difference in British military hospitals for white soldiers. She was worried by the lack of doctors as well as nurses. On many wards, a part-time civilian doctor would show up for a few hours in the morning before going back to his own private practice. When the Burma show was on, she wrote to her superiors, trains came in daily packed with wounded, and the hospitals didn't know which way to turn. Shall we not get more hospital scandals? Something must be done. When her ideas for encouraging more women volunteers into Indian hospitals were rebuffed by a non-committal letter from senior military officers, Lillian Pert retorted, by the tone of their remarks, I might almost have made an improper suggestion by saying that English women should nurse Indian soldiers. Pert's damning criticisms of her superiors, of the racism still built into the assumptions of the state and of the organisation of health provision for colonial soldiers were being echoed by other nurses who saw the discrepancy between the healthcare for Indian and British soldiers. I'm going to end with another soldier, but a very different image and a very different representation of women. This is a sketch drawn by Clive Branson. Clive Branson was born in 1907. He was a poet, an artist and a communist activist who was stationed in India during the Second World War as a soldier. He was both intently anti-fascist and also anti-imperialist. Some of his paintings are um, today in the Tate. He wrote home regularly to his wife and daughter from India, and he also expressed an interest in and a concern for the civilian populations he was living among. For instance, expressing his distaste for the way in which men were going to, to visit uh, brothels and also outrage at the Bengal famine. He noticed the condition of women as well as men in India. Clive Branson was part of the same intellectual and social milieu as Raphael Samuel's mother. And Raphael Samuel wrote in 1985 in The Lost World of British Communism, one of my earliest political memories at the age of seven is of being told by my mother during the Bengal famine of 1943 that Europeans were eating seven course meals in their restaurants while Indians were dying on the streets. And one of the early books which made an impression on me was Clive Branson's British Soldier in India, The Letters of an Artist Communist, posthumously published in 1944, which documented its ravages. So, thrillingly, I think Raphael Semi would have seen this picture as a child reproduced in this book. And in the sketch of the women and men in a domestic interior in Maharashtra, there's much to like about the humble ordinariness of the scene, the domestic sewing of the women, the casual relaxed poses, the intimation of equality, perhaps, between the women and men of the house, and at the centre of it all, the girl child. Clive Branson was killed on the Burma front in 1944, fighting the Japanese shortly after he sketched this. But Clive Branson embodied the spirit of internationalism, and an egalitarian, universalist approach to human beings. Also, with the bravery and willingness to stand up to fascist aggression, and characteristics which we also see in Raphael Samuel's work. It's possible to construct counter-histories of Britain's Second World War, and I think this is to complicate and deepen understandings of the 1940s, rather than to undermine the crucial struggle against fascism. As the activist scholar Cynthia Enloe, who writes about feminism and war, says, she says, any war is in fact comprised of myriad wars. While some theatres of battle may gain prominence in the post-war tellings, they're not the totality of that war. 
In other words, the perspective that we take, the vantage point, whose shoes we inhabit, have ethical implications. And taboos about what can and can't be said about the Second World War seem to be growing rather than decreasing in recent years in Britain. Churchill's subject to deeply polarised views, a nasty ahistoricism linking contemporary fantasies about Europe and the histories of the 1940s. As Vincent O'Toole has pointed out, Britain is locked in its own psychodrama at the moment, one in which winning the Second World War is pivotal, as well as fantasies of defeat. Remembrance Sunday and the wearing of the poppy is politically charged, and the foreclosure of discussion, the resistance to debate, the reasoned historical inquiry about the war is worrisome on both the left and the right. It may well be the foundational myth of a new English nationalism. The spirit of internationalism and universality often seems absent from British war commemoration, although contemporaries at the time saw the question quite differently. The other side of this coin are whole expanses of under-researched questions and missing voices. Restoring the presence of black and Asian people or women to the picture, as war memorials have tended to do, is a start. But engagement with Britain's imperial history of the Second World War is uncomfortable and possibly disturbing. We can go beyond the recovery of black and Asian soldiers, the multicultural celebrations of imperial soldiery, as vital as they are, to try to reconstitute all the people in these regions as fully-fledged and complex historical actors in their own right. Many thanks to Professor Yasmin Khan, to the Raphael Samuel History Centre who convened this event, to Queen Mary College London who hosted it, to Ellie Robeson who made the recording, and to Imogen Greenberg who edited it. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.